Hey. How you feeling? Okay. Claire May is sick. Oh, is she? Yeah. So she's, uh, I'll be playing today. Here's your mask. You need to keep this nearby.
Good morning. It's wonderful to see all of you and Carol this morning. <laughs> Thank the Lord for the rain. Beautiful and green out there. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. 2 Timothy 2.13. See, the special offering that we received was $200. Thank you to Sheila. Thank you for the Lapeer EMS for our new defibrillator. I see it's mid-installation there in the office. Just as you step in the door, you'll see it to the right. See Dr. Ed's address there again. Uh, envelopes in the offering box um, so that the deacons can count. Andrea's number and take advantage of Days of Praise uh, along with the Acts and Facts. They're here for August. Um, anything I've missed? I don't know the scripture for meditation. I'm lacking. Do we have one? Let's read a psalm. How's that? Somebody pick one. George, can you pick a psalm for us? 
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless us as we leave. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would be pleased to meet with us today. Thank you for the Psalms, as we've read uh, just now, of your greatness, of your forgiveness. We, we don't get from you what we deserve. It's not justice, it's mercy, and we thank you for it. We ask that you would be with our pastor uh, this morning as he opens the word and shares it with us, that your spirit would do the work of teaching, that we would be open, that we would be free from distraction, that we would be able to make application of the scriptures in order to be more like Christ. We think of uh, those who are uh, still shut in, and I ask for blessing on them. Those that may be ill, bless those or perhaps traveling. Again, Lord, we uh, seek to worship and praise you. I pray that uh, our songs would be uh, acceptable worship unto you. Bless us as we meet. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 109-109 in the brown.
be seated. Sheila. Yes, ma'am. Do we have a favorite hymn? 201 in the brown, grace greater than our sin. 201 in the brown. Absolutely. Just one. <laughs> there are so many. 201. I love this one, too. If I can find There it is. <clears throat>
Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Timothy, chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 8 through 15, 1853 in the Pew Bible. If you'll stand with us, we'll read together. Amen. Thank you, Phil. <clears throat> you turn in your hymnal again to 325, 325 in the brown hymnal.
Our text this morning is 2 Timothy 2. Give you a little update on my health. Um, I'm now doing dialysis twice a day, so that really uh, wears me out. And uh, I'm waiting for a kidney transplant. And when that comes in, they say, get ready for nine, month, nine to 12 months of feeling absolutely terrible. So just uh, alert the church ahead of time. I'm sure I'll have help from uh, Jared and Doug, uh, our elders, to help in terms of teaching and stuff. Because uh, I'm probably going to be laid up for good part of that time it, it doesn't look ple- pleasant to tell you the truth I'm already tired and worn out and I'm, I'm still chugging along just in case you don't know my kidneys are failing so um, we have in our family both on my father's side and mother's side kidney disease and uh, so now it's taking its toll on me. My brother also has kidney stones. I never had stones, thankfully, but uh, they say my kidneys are dying, so that's where I'm at. So anyway, appreciate your prayers, and um, we'll just keep plugging along, and I'm sure the Lord is going to sustain us all and take care of us. Uh, he likes little things, and this is a little church, so <laughs> I think the Lord will take care of us. I'm very confident of that. All right, our text is uh, 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 and following. In our previous study, we talked about faithful citizens under a government that might be hostile to Christian morality and principles. That's not a stretch for us to think about those things. We see it throughout the world, and sad to say, it's coming to America. It really is. We looked at some irrefutable truths. Number one, that God alone is the sovereign ruler of all people. He sets us in place under a government that exists, whether good or bad. God is in control of that. Secondly, everyone must submit himself, Paul says, to the governing authority. Else we we would be resisting the will of God. Think about that. We are to be law-abiding promoters of good in our society. So what if we have a bad, corrupt government? Well, when did Paul write what he wrote? Who was on the throne? Nero was Caesar of Rome. What did Nero do with Christians? Slaughtered them. Crucified them on the uh, Della Rosa used them to as human torches to light up the roadway that goes into Rome. Crosses along the way. If you've ever seen the movie Spartacus, it's a good halfway decent rendition of what went on. I don't think they showed in that movie that they were set on fire, but they did show that the Christians were crucified on crosses and lined up along the road that went into Rome. Well, They pitched them with pitch and then lit them on fire. And they became the torches at night to illuminate the 
the road. Terrible, wicked, wicked king. Uh, and history has had that happen numerous times with regard to Christians. But God alone, as we say, is the sovereign over uh, all governments. And we're to submit ourselves to that. All government, we learn, has borrowed authority, not absolute authority. So what we mean by that is the authority comes from God, and that makes it legitimate, but it also makes that authority accountable to God. So we ask the question, what, what about that? State law versus God's law. Well, state law has the role of preventing anarchy, protecting the good, punishing the evil. Paul talks about that in Romans. That's why we have government. However, whenever the state oversteps its authority or reverses its role by punishing the righteous and rewarding the wicked, we are not obligated to comply. If you've seen the story of Cory ten Boom, uh, under Nazi-occupied Germany. She wasn't going to uh, knuckle under to what Hitler wanted to do with the Jews, so she became a protector. <clears throat> and you've probably seen the movie, The Hiding Place, where she hid uh, condemned Jews in her attic way and so forth. And <clears throat> so that's... Um, a truth that we need to take to heart. Whenever government opposes the law of God, we're not obligated to obey. God's laws always supersede state laws. And obviously God gives his people discernment to know what's what. We listed some areas where we need to be careful. Restrictions on the practice of our faith. Those are things we need to look for. MacArthur's church out in California was told because of the coronavirus, you cannot meet anymore. I guess he's got a pretty good big, big size building and so on and a large congregation. So what did he do? He basically told them to take a hike. They were going to meet. We're not obliged to listen to the state when they enter into realms of our faith that they have nothing to do. Prohibitions of those kind are invalid. If they tell us we cannot proclaim our faith. For example, prohibiting street witnessing, passing out tracts, gospel singing in the park. They can have a rock band in the park. We can have a gospel choral group in the park. And sometimes we roll over and play dead when we shouldn't do that. And anytime they try to compel us to violate the moral principles of our faith, we oppose that. Well, today we're going to conclude this series on living faith which I've labored to point out that a living deposit of genuine faith God gives to his people and it will result in the trust in him 
and, and using that faith all of our life, not just the beginning. We looked at this uh, parable, the master of the estate who distributed his own resources to his stewards, expected that upon his return they would have utilized his resources well and would have advanced his kingdom through their faithful living. And that, of course, you had the, the bad steward that didn't do that. He hid the talent that he was given in the ground. So as we come to our study today, close out this series, let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have to look once again into your word and to be encouraged by it, challenged by it, rebuked by it, saved by it, if we're not saved. I pray, Lord, that you will indeed meet with us. Don't allow us to be here by ourselves. Send your Holy Spirit to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to do His work. And we thank you for the written Word. We thank you for protecting it through years of persecution. May we understand how privileged we are to have our own personal copy of the Holy Bible. We pray that you will do your work and get your glory for yourself. Amen. What happens when we are sluggish in our Christian living, not as responsive to God's goodness as we could be and should be? Are we then disowned by God? We know that no fruit, no spiritual life, indicates a lazy stewardship And the steward in the parable in Matthew 25 was called wicked because he did not improve upon what God gave him. He had nothing to show for his stewardship. No, No obedience, no fidelity to God. We're not really talking about that person this morning. I'm talking about the sin that plagues us all, even as God's people, and that is the sin that spells failure in many areas of our lives? Can we send away the grace that God has given us? Can we exhaust or deplete God's deposit of grace and faith? It's a real conundrum for some that don't believe in the sanctity of grace. And they take out of the mix the fact that God is faithful. You can be unfaithful, but God is faithful. We have in verse 8, Paul's exhortation to Timothy. What does he say? He says, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. You got to get your focus on the right person. Remember Jesus Christ. Timothy was a seminary student in training with none other than the Apostle Paul as his tutor. The book of 2 Timothy was written from a prison cell in Rome where Paul was awaiting the carrying out of Nero's death sentence. In his first imprisonment, Paul had been released for a little while, but now he had been rearrested and he tells Timothy, chapter 4, verse 6, 
For I am ready, be, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 and following. What is Paul saying here? He's saying... Yeah, I was in prison once and they let me go. But this time, this time, there will be no reprieve from the death sentence. There will be no last minute governor's pardon. There will be no freedom to speak to visitors and officers as in the first imprisonment. No, Paul will be executed in compliance with Nero's decree. But you will note that the apostle is not morose. He's not depressed. He's not discouraged. He's not defeated in his spirit. He talks instead of receiving a crown. He talks about an award presented by none other than the Lord himself. Verse 8. It's almost, I say almost like, Wow, he's anticipating this. In chapter 4, verse 18, he goes on to say, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a doxology right in the book. And by the way, he's not saying here, God will rescue me from Nero's sword. That's not the rescue he's talking about. For elsewhere, this same apostle painted an accurate picture of the Christian warfare saying, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6 verse 12. He knows where the battle's really going. We should know where the battle's going on too. Behind Nero's assault to the Christian community, and especially on Paul, there were evil spiritual forces that were the real antagonists and enemies. Paul knew this. You should know this. Your enemy is not that flesh and blood neighbor that bugs you next door all the time. It is not the boss that you work for. It's not the family member that aggravates you. It's not the government official who is harassing you for your faith in Jesus. It's not the IRS that's taking you to court. No, there are spiritual forces of evil <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in the heavenly realms. They inspire, they motivate, they compel men to perpetuate wicked things on righteous people. In fact, it is for righteousness' sake that God's people become the target of such assaults. Victory over these evil, evil people is what Paul references when he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom.
So it's obvious that Paul is about to be executed for his faith. He knows that. And this time, there's not going to be any reprieve. No. You know, the last words of a dying person are very important. They're very important. We know this even in the secular realm of human relations. I mean, when a loved one is dying, what do we do? We rush to their bedside, hoping to say our last goodbyes, eager to hear anything they might have to say to us if they can still speak. Paul is in full control of his faculties. He is not suffering from dementia. He is not suffering from senility. Timothy is urged, verse 9 of chapter 4, Do your best to come to me quickly, says Paul. But even if Timothy does not make it in time, Paul, ever the teacher of gospel truth, writes to Timothy his last will and testimony, and here it is. Here's what he says. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Verse 8. Short and sweet. But why? My. How packed with truth that is. Jesus Christ. Christ meaning the Messiah. Raised from the dead. We don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a living Savior. Descended from David. He's a king. King of kings. And Lord of lords. Remember King David's heir, and at the same time David's Lord, and your Lord. Remember the content of the gospel message which I preached, verse 8. Remember that though I may be chained in a dungeon, the word of God is not chained, verse 9. Remember that in Christ Jesus the elect of God are sure to salvation with eternal glory, verse 10. These are things you should remember. He's building a case here for the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to his people. And that is why he can say, and that is why he does say, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me. Chapter 4, verse 7. We listen to that testimony and we say, good for you, apostle, but I'm no Paul. Hmm. we think to ourselves well Paul has earned his spot in heaven he has suffered much he's endured great persecution for his faith but I'm a shabby shadow of Christian fidelity I have left the Lord down so many times that I cannot remember them all my life is pocked with much sin and betrayal in the gospel well if that's the way you're thinking you're missing the point of Paul's testimony Paul is not pontificating on his own virtues. He is telling Timothy and all of us, remember Jesus Christ. The Lord will award to me on that day a crown of righteousness, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Chapter 4, verse 8. So Paul is not banking on his own righteousness, but a crown of righteous, 
righteousness given to him by Christ, a righteousness found only in Christ, and given not just to apostles and seminary students, but to all who love Jesus and all who look forward to his appearing. That's why you must remember Jesus Christ. Paul was a great teacher and an exemplary example to Timothy of the things that he taught. But he wants Timothy to remember what? Not me. Remember Jesus, Timothy. Remember what he has done. Remember what he has pledged himself to do on behalf of his elect people. Timothy, it isn't <laughs> you, you, you. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's what Paul's point is to all of us. This is his dying testimony to all of us. He is going on record in his final words to tell us the secret of our security in spiritual matters. His trust is not in self-confidence, but trust in Jesus Christ raised from the dead. In Jesus, the living Savior who stands ready and able to save his people, come what may. Even though he, Paul, is facing death. And this time, there will be no reprieve. And then he gives this trustworthy saving. Beginning in verse 11, Paul says, here's a trustworthy saying. King James Version says, a faithful saying. What's he saying? Here's something you can bank on. Here is something more stable than the rock of Gibraltar. It is the saying. It is the word of the living Savior. It is the pronouncement of the God who cannot lie. What is it? If we died with him, we will also live with him. This has to do with beginnings, doesn't it? There was a time in every believer's life when he or she lived in the flesh to indulge every evil desire. We use the members of our body from head to toe to break every moral commandment of Christ and to gratify the evil desires of our heart. We planned evil things with our mind. We spoke lies with our tongues. We committed theft with our hands, immorality and thought and deed with our eyes and other body parts. Our feet were swift to take us to the broad path that leads to hell. We did all this with no thought of God. He wasn't even an afterthought in our thinking. Conscience was seared in sensitivity. We loved our sin. We loved our sin. We loved our sin. But then God came to us when we would not come to him. And in mercy that is inexplicable and grace that is incomprehensible. God spoke to us in the gospel that we had heard a dozen times before and ignored as just as many times. Only this time, 
the blinders of Satan were ripped away and light poured into our darkened soul. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, think of Genesis and the creation of the world. The God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Think about that. The miracle of creation and the miracle of new birth. Paul links them together. A new earth, a new heaven, and a new you. knew you in a moment in a split second our eyes were opened and we were turned from darkness to light from the power of satan to god so that we may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in jesus acts 26 verse 18 Now, as a result, we died that day. And we came alive spiritually for the first time in our physical life. And Paul says in Romans, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, Hmm. but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Romans 6, verse 8 and following. You die once, you live forever. Verse 12 of our text says, If we endure... We will also reign with him. So if verse 11 speaks of beginning the Christian life through the work of Christ on our behalf. Verse 12 speaks of the persevering in the Christian life and its reward if we endure, says Paul, if we endure. How do, you, how do we know a person's faith in Jesus is genuine? I think that's a good question. Why is that a good question? Because there are so many counterfeit testimonies out there. More personally, how do you know that your faith in Jesus is genuine? It's not a trivial question. It's not. There are some who teach a doctrine called the eternal security of the believer. And the slogan of the doctrine 
repeated is, well, once saved, always saved. I've heard that up to here. Once saved, always saved. Now, while there's some truth to this, the slogan has been misdefined and misused by some to say, once saved, it matters not how you live, because you can never lose your salvation. Is that what Paul would say? Does that sound like him? The assertion, it matters not how you live your life, is not what Paul is teaching here. He is saying the direct opposite. If you endure, those are his words, not mine. If you endure, if you per- persevere in the faith, you will also reign with him. Starting the race with Jesus is not rewarded. Finishing the race is rewarded. Christendom is full of starters, but short on finishers. Our Lord himself was the one who taught this. He said, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 24, verse 13 to 14. In the context, he's talking about the last days and the persecution that comes. So he's saying, he who stands firm in the faith to the end will be saved. Perseverance involves a pursuit that never lets up. It's the pursuit to render dead the spiritual deeds of the body and to learn to practice holiness of life. And we can slip and fall. and We can have times of backsliding. I believe that. But I also believe that God's grace changes people. It does. God's grace makes us like God's son, Jesus to whom we are predestined to be conformed. Romans 8, verse 29. This is not instantaneous. It is an ongoing reality. You must be changed. You will be changed to be more Christ-like in thought, word, and deed, or your profession of faith is bogus. By the way, Paul never accepted a person's testimony unless there was evident holiness in the life to back it up. This is why he wrote to the Corinthian church, to people to whom he was the first to preach the gospel. Here's what he wrote to them. You guys need to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. I'm reading scripture. Paul's words. What? Yes, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Oh, unless, of course, you fail the test. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Why would he write that to them? Because Corinth 
was a church tolerating immorality in their midst, backbiting in their midst, lawsuits against one another, dissension, disorderly conduct like drunkenness at the Lord's table of all places, disrespect for Paul and other preachers of the gospel that came their way to share the truth. They were proud and arrogant and defiant. So the question comes, where was the Spirit of Christ in them? Where's the evidence? And so Paul told them, you guys better seriously test your faith to prove its validity. God's people don't behave this way, but that's the way you're living. You know, we all need to do this. We need to test our profession against the biblical description of a life of faith. And it's sobering and it's sometimes humbling and it's always revealing. And in your analysis, Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. Don't make this comparison among yourself. Well, I'm better than so. Well, I don't do it, but they do. No, the, the, the person you compare yourself with is the Lord Jesus. Oh, and also verse 12, if we disown Jesus, Paul says he will disown us. Did you know this verse was in the Bible? Kind of makes you scratch your head about once saved, always saved, doesn't it? If we disown him, he will disown us. We read this and we say, you know, I, <laughs> I was feeling pretty good until now. My, how many times I have disowned the Lord. I was silent when I should have spoke. I caved into peer pressure when I should have stood for Christ. I ran away and hid when I should have remained visible and steadfast. What about you? Brethren, this is the sin that haunts me. Failure after failure to own Christ in non-Christian settings. Hesitating to speak when the message of the gospel is being denigrated and ridiculed by ignorant and wicked men. And to make matters worse, Jesus cuts me and he cuts you no slack. Instead, he says, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. And we gulp. Mm. Mm. Matthew 10, verse 30 and following. He is talking about those times when because of fear we fail to acknowledge Christ and we've all done it. We've all played Peter. Peter. 
in the courtyard. But is this unforgivable? Is there no recovery from such cowardice? Remember Jesus' warning to Peter? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered this very night before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Matthew 26, verse 34. And though Peter protested that such would not be the case, he did disown his Lord and in public arena, not once, but three times, the last being peered, peppered with cursing and protest. What about the other disciples? Let me read it for you. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, you disciples. Yet I'm not alone, for my Father's with me. John 16, verse 32. Isn't leaving Jesus in the hour of crisis to the incarceration of his Enemies, a form of disowning him? Yet all the disciples, all of them to a man, did this. For Peter, you recall that he went out in the courtyard that night and wept bitterly for his denial of Christ. Yet at the open tomb, the angel instructed the women there, go tell his disciples, oh, and Peter, Go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of them into Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. Mark 16 verse 7. And along the seashores of Galilee some days later, Jesus reassured Peter saying three times, Peter, feed my sheep. You're still my man. You're still the guy I want to preach to my sheep. And every disciple to a man was summarily reinstated as they sheepishly reunited in the upper room, still in fear for their lives. And Jesus appeared saying, Peace be with you. John 20, verse 19. Those cowardly men who caved into their sinful fear that day became the lights For the gospel that even physical persecution could not snuff out. We have the histories of most of these men. And it's astonishing. I'm talking about the thereafter. Let me read some for you. Peter, crucified upside down by his own request at age 70 under the edict of Nero in AD 69 the same year Paul was beheaded by Nero. Andrew, crucified at Patras in Achaia by order of the Roman Senate, A.D. 70. Bartholomew preached the gospel in Upper Asia, Syria, even into India, and later in Armenia, where the king's brother and wife were converted, and this so enraged the king that he crucified Bartholomew upside down and then flayed him alive and finally cut off his head because he refused to recant his faith. Whoa. Downing Thomas, 
Well, what happened with Downing Thomas? He traveled and preached in the East Indies where the natives were persuaded to renounce their worship of the sun god. He was accused by the cult priests and tortured with red-hot plates, after which he was thrown into a furnace and burned alive. Downing Thomas. Matthew was nailed to the ground with stakes and then beheaded in Nabadar, the capital then of Ethiopia. Simon the Zealot, after bringing the gospel to Egypt and Cyrene and Africa and Libya and Great Britain, finally joined his brother Thaddeus, who was ministering in Persia. And there Simon was crucified with Thaddeus, and Thaddeus was beaten to death with rods. Matthias, the replacement for Judas, ministered in the deep headwaters of Ethiopia, but in later years returned to Jerusalem where he refused to denounce Christ and so was hung on a cross and then stoned and then finally beheaded by Jewish zealots. On and on it went. Only the Apostle John, only the Apostle John, died of old age after being exiled to the Roman penal colony of Patmos for preaching the gospel. He was later released and he died as an old man in Ephesus. All these apostles who ran away, who hid in fear, Disowning Jesus in his crucial hour, they became men who in ministry proved their love for Jesus in the end. But be careful to give credit where credit is due. Their fidelity had nothing to do with self-reformation. Nothing to do with that. But everything to do with Jesus' faithfulness to them. This is why Paul tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Verse 8. This is a great truth for us. Faithful Jesus to unfaithful people. Just think about it. Fidelity unrequited. Verse 13. If we are faithless... He will remain faithful. Unrequited refers to something that's not reciprocated. Something that's not returned. People speak of unrequited love. Someone, some woman falls in love with a particular man, but he doesn't love her back. He may even be indifferent. This is unrequited love. So here Paul tells us that God is not like that in dealing with his people. He says that just because we are faithless when obeying God and loving him does not mean that God is going to be faithless and unloving to us. Instead, God is going to be faithful to us even when his fidelity is unrequited. Worse, even when we are faithless. 
That's something to grab hold of. And it's a hard sell for some people to understand this. I mean, all of their dealings with one another is based on reciprocation. My dad used to have a a statement. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. That was my dad's favorite saying. You do for me and I will do for you. Implied in this is the notion that nobody does something for nothing. Nobody does something without a price tag attached to it. Or if it's not money, they expect some kind of payback, a favor, a good word said on their behalf. Uh, I'll look the other way if they're doing something shady and they don't want you to report them. This is why every religion in the world except Christianity is a works religion. People are working hard to earn salvation and a spot in heaven because they construct God in the mold of man whereas the gospel constructs us in the mold of Jesus Christ. Man expects to buy, to pay, to barter with God for spiritual favors just as he would pay for any goods or services in day-to-day living. Kindness with no strings attached, salvation free, fully paid for by a Savior is absolutely foreign to people of the world. It is. They don't believe it. They always think in terms of What's this going to cost me? What's the catch? And when we add deliberate sin into the mix, God's grace becomes even more suspect. You mean, even if I am faithless, God will remain faithful. I don't believe it. Yet every Christian here is living proof of God's unrequited fidelity towards us. How can this be? Well, basically because God is faithful by nature. Look at verse 13. He cannot disown himself. Strange as it may sound, there are certain things that God cannot do. He cannot lie, for example. Titus 1 verse 2 says that. He cannot sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Jesus is identified as such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 7, verse 26. God's faithful character has tremendous implications for our salvation. 
Let me suggest some. Number one, God can never renege on his promises. He can never renege on his promises. Cannot. Do you get that? Not will not, but cannot. He cannot renege on his promises. Let me read it for you. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. Psalm 145 verse 13. Again, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Or again, you know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. We don't know a being like this. There's no human being like this. God can never renege on his promises. Secondly, God can never sin against you. He can never do anything wicked towards his people. Think about this. He cannot do it. It's not will not. It's he cannot do anything wicked towards his people. Let me read it for you. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Again, for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Psalm 33, verse 4 and 5. Or in Psalm 146, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives, can't get my papers, gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets prisoners free, the Lord gives sight to the blind, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your, our, your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Psalm 146, verse 6 and following. And thirdly, God can never fail to forgive you your sins if you're trusting Christ can't do it let me read it for you first john 1 verse 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness again you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our lord jesus christ to be revealed he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our lord jesus christ He'll keep you strong to the end. God who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord is faithful. He's faithful. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7 through 9. Again, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. 1 John 1 verse 7. 
God can never fail to forgive you your sins. And fourthly, God cannot abandon you to the temptations of Satan and to hell's damnation. He cannot. Let, let me read it again. Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house. Hmm. If we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Hebrews 3, verse 6. Again, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Does that sound like you're in trouble when you're tempted? Again, the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 3 through 5. Sounds like to me that when God gets his teeth into you, he isn't letting go. He's hanging on tenaciously. Oh, and number five, God can never turn down a sinner who sincerely calls on him for salvation. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on the name of the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 9 and following. Five verses there. Never, 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 never. Call upon the Lord. Can you hear the sweeping scope of these promises? Anyone who trusts, all who call, everyone who calls. Those are sweeping statements. No barrier but your own reluctance. No restriction but your own unbelief. Today is your day of salvation. If you're not saved, God is calling you today trust him he's not asking you to partner with him no but to lean on his faithfulness alone he's paid it all in Jesus there's nothing for you to pay you're just called upon to believe it Father we thank you for your word how precious we're thankful that salvation really is not a partnership because guess what? This part of the partnership would always fail. But you are, as we have read these many scriptures, you are faithful. Faithful. 
That's why our salvation is secure. Because it does not depend on us. It depends upon your faithfulness. We thank you for that. You reached down from heaven. You came down from heaven. You went to the cross. You paid our indebtedness to the broken law. And you pull us up out of the miry clay, set our feet upon the solid rock, granted us life and peace and hope. And yes, the faith that it takes to believe you and trust you only. If there's any here today struggling with the whole idea of salvation, may they hear these sweeping statements. Anyone who trusts, all who call, everyone who calls. There's no restrictions here except our own lack of action. And even that, Lord, you will be you will make us willing in the day of your power. I pray that today will be the power of salvation for some. In Christ's name, amen. Our closing hymn is 43 in the hymnal. The brown think a very appropriate hymn to close out our service. 43 in the brown hymnal. Let's stand together and sing.
give you a little update on my health. Uh, I'm now doing, having to do uh, dialysis twice a day, uh, which just means that the kidneys have failed even that much more. I'm on the, um, I had a meeting with Henry Ford Hospital personnel this past week and I'm on, um, they're going to put me on the list for a, a kidney, um, but that can take up to two, three years to get a kidney. So in the meantime, my uh, kidney output continues to decrease. So I'm just alerting you that I'm not going to get better, I'm going to get sicker. And I hope you will bear with that. We'll try to work through uh, who's preaching who, the services and things of that nature. Because it's going to get to the point where my energy level just isn't going to be there. Uh, I'm already sensing some of that. Like today, you know, I, if I preach one sermon like today, I'm done for the day. That's why we don't have an evening service because I'm spent. <clears throat> but I know you're praying for me, and I'm, I appreciate that so much. And the Lord is in it all, so I'm not discouraged. It's, you know, it's, it's his will for my life for right now, and I'm on a kidney list, So, but it just takes a while to have a kidney. I don't want to take any kidneys from my children. They, they suggested that because we have kidney disease in our family. My father and mother both had kidney disease problems, so I come by it, honestly. My brother suffers from kidney stones. My sister has kidney issues. So we've got kidney, kidney, kidney problems, and I'm thinking my kids are going to need all their kidneys themselves as they grow older because of all the history that's there. So anyway, just thank you for your prayers and just... I uh, wanted to bring you up to date as to where we are, uh, and the Lord bless you. Amen. We're dismissed. I got it from your car. That one's yours. Okay.